Section 42 of Character. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Character by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 11, Part E Companionship in Marriage. The married life of Faraday was eminently happy. In his wife he found, at the same time, a true helpmate and soulmate. She supported, cheered, and strengthened him on his way through life, giving him the clear contentment of a heart at ease. In his diary he speaks of his marriage as a source of honor and happiness far exceeding all the rest. After twenty-eight years' experience he spoke of it as an event which, more than any other, had contributed to his earthly happiness and healthy state of mind. The union, said he, has in no wise changed, except only in the depth and strength of its character. And for six and forty years did the union continue unbroken, the love of the old man remaining as fresh, as earnest, as heart-whole, as in the days of his impetuous youth. In this case, marriage was as a golden chain let down from heaven, whose links are bright and even that falls like sleep on lovers and combines the soft and sweetest minds in equal knots. Besides being a helper, woman is emphatically a consoler. Her sympathy is unfailing. She soothes, cheers, and comforts. Never was this more true than in the case of the wife of Tom Hood, whose tender devotion to him, during a life that was a prolonged illness, is one of the most affecting things in biography. A woman of excellent good sense, she appreciated her husband's genius, and, by encouragement and sympathy, cheered and hardened him to renewed effort in many a weary struggle for life. She created about him an atmosphere of hope and cheerfulness, and nowhere did the sunshine of her love seem so bright as when lighting up the couch of her invalid husband. Nor was he unconscious of her worth. In one of his letters to her, when absent from his side, Hood said, I never was anything, dearest, till I knew you, and I have been a better, happier, and more prosperous man ever since. Lay by that truth in lavender, sweetest, and remind me of it when I fail. I am writing warmly and fondly, but not without good cause. First, your own affectionate letter, lately received. Next, the remembrance of our dear children, pledges, what darling ones, of our old familiar love. Then, a delicious impulse to pour out the overflowings of my heart into yours, and last, not least, the knowledge that your dear eyes will read what my hand is now writing. Perhaps there is an afterthought that, whatever may befall me, the wife of my bosom will have the acknowledgment of her tenderness, worth, excellence, all that is wifely or womanly from my pen. In another letter, also written to his wife during a brief absence, there is a natural touch, showing his deep affection for her. I went and retraced our walk in the park, and sat down on the same seat, and felt happier and better. But not only was Mrs. Hood a consoler, she was also a helper of her husband in his special work. He had such confidence in her judgment that he read, and re-read, and corrected with her assistance all that he wrote. Many of his pieces were first dedicated to her, and her ready memory often supplied him with the necessary references and quotations. Thus, in the role of noble wives of men of genius, 
Mrs. Hood will always be entitled to take a foremost place. Not less effective as a literary helper was Lady Napier, the wife of Sir William Napier, historian of the Peninsular War. She encouraged him to undertake the work, and without her help he would have experienced great difficulty in completing it. She translated and epitomized the immense mass of original documents, many of them in cipher, on which it was in a great measure founded. When the Duke of Wellington was told of the art and industry she had displayed in deciphering King Joseph's portfolio, and the immense mass of correspondence taken at Vittoria, he at first would hardly believe it, adding, I would have given twenty thousand to any person who could have done this for me in the peninsula. Sir William Napier's handwriting being almost illegible, Lady Napier made out his rough interlined manuscript, which he himself scarcely read and wrote out a full fair copy for the printer, and all this vast labor she undertook and accomplished, according to the testimony of her husband, without having for a moment neglected the care and education of a large family. When Sir William lay on his deathbed, Lady Napier was at the same time dangerously ill, but she was wheeled into his room on a sofa, and the two took their silent farewell of each other. The husband died first. In a few weeks the wife followed him, and they sleep side by side in the same grave. Many other similar true-hearted wives rise up in the memory to recite whose praises would more than fill up our remaining space, such as Flaxman's wife, Anne Denham, who cheered and encouraged her husband through life in the prosecution of his art, accompanying him to Rome, sharing in his labors and anxieties, and finally in his triumphs, and to whom Flaxman, in the fortieth year of their married life, dedicated his beautiful designs illustrative of faith, hope, and charity, in token of his deep and undimmed affection, such as Catherine Boucher, dark-eyed Kate, the wife of William Blake, who believed her husband to be the first genius on earth, worked off the impressions of his plates and colored them beautifully with her own hand, bore with him in all his erratic ways, sympathized with him in his sorrows and joys for forty-five years, and comforted him until his dying hour his last sketch made in his seventy-first year being a likeness of himself before making which seeing his wife crying by his side he said stay kate just keep as you are i will draw your portrait for you have ever been an angel to me such again as lady franklin the true and noble woman who never rested in her endeavors to penetrate the secret of the polar sea and prosecute the search for her long-lost husband undaunted by failure and persevering in her determination with a devotion and singleness of purpose altogether unparalleled or such again as the wife of zimmerman whose intense melancholy she strove in vain to assuage sympathizing with him listening to him and endeavoring to understand him and to whom when on her deathbed about to leave him for ever she addressed the touching words my poor zimmerman who will now understand thee? Wives have actively helped their husbands in other ways. Before Winesburg surrendered to its besiegers, the women of that place asked permission of the captors to remove their valuables. The permission was granted, and shortly after the women were seen issuing from the gates carrying their husbands on their shoulders. Lord Nithsdale owed his escape from prison to the address of his wife, who changed garments with him sending him forth in her stead, and herself remaining prisoner, 
an example which was successfully repeated by Madame de Lavalette. But the most remarkable instance of the release of a husband through the devotion of a wife was that of the celebrated Gratius. He had lain for nearly twenty months in the strong fortress of Loevestein, near Gorkum, having been condemned by the government of the United Provinces to perpetual imprisonment. His wife, having been allowed to share his cell, greatly relieved his solitude. She was permitted to go into the town twice a week, and bring her husband books, of which he required a large number to enable him to prosecute his studies. At length a large chest was required to hold them. This the sentries at first examined with great strictness, but, finding that it only contained books, amongst others Arminian books, and linen, they at length gave up the search, and it was allowed to pass out and in as a matter of course. This led Grotius's wife to conceive the idea of releasing him, and she persuaded him one day to deposit himself in the chest instead of the outgoing books. When the two soldiers appointed to remove it took it up, they felt it to be considerably heavier than usual, and one of them asked jestingly, Have we got the Arminian himself here? To which the ready-witted wife replied, Yes, perhaps some Arminian books. The chest reached Gorkum in safety, the captive was released, and Grotius escaped across the frontier into Brabant, and afterwards into France, where he was rejoined by his wife. Trial and suffering are the tests of married life. They bring out the real character and often tend to produce the closest union. They may even be the spring of the purest happiness. Uninterrupted joy, like uninterrupted success, is not good for either man or woman. When Heine's wife died, he began to reflect upon the loss he had sustained. They had both known poverty and struggled through it hand in hand, and it was his greatest sorrow that she was taken from him at the moment when fortune was beginning to smile upon him, but too late for her to share in his prosperity. Alas, I, said he, amongst my griefs, must I reckon even her love, the strongest, truest, that ever inspired the heart of woman, which made me the happiest of mortals, and yet was to me a fountain of a thousand distresses, inquietudes, and cares? To entire cheerfulness, perhaps, she never attained. But for what unspeakable sweetness, what exalted, enrapturing joys, is not love indebted to sorrow? Amidst growing anxieties, with the torture of anguish in my heart, I have been made, even by the loss which caused me this anguish and these anxieties, inexpressibly happy. When tears flowed over our cheeks, did not a nameless, seldom-felt delight stream through my breast, oppressed equally by joy and sorrow? There is a degree of sentiment in German love which seems strange to English readers, such as we find depicted in the lives of Novalis, Jung Stilling, Fichte, Jean-Paul, and others that might be named. The German betrothal is a ceremony of almost equal importance to the marriage itself, and in that state the sentiments are allowed free play, whilst English lovers are restrained, shy, and as if ashamed of their feelings. Take, for instance, the case of Herder, whom his future wife first saw in the pulpit. I heard, she says, the voice of an angel, and soul's words such as I had never heard before. In the afternoon I saw him, and stammered out my thanks to him. From this time forth our souls were one. 
They were betrothed long before their means would permit them to marry, but at length they were united. We were married, says Caroline, the wife, by the rose light of a beautiful evening. We were one heart, one soul. Herder was equally ecstatic in his language. I have a wife, he wrote to Jacoby, that is the tree, the consolation, and the happiness of my life. Even in flying transient thoughts, which often surprise us, we are one. Take, again, the case of Fichte, in whose history his courtship and marriage form a beautiful episode. He was a poor German student living with a family at Zurich in the capacity of tutor, when he first made the acquaintance of Johanna Maria Hahn, a niece of Klopstock. Her position in life was higher than that of Fichte. Nevertheless, she regarded him with sincere admiration. When Fichte was about to leave Zurich, his troth plighted to her. She, knowing him to be very poor, offered him a gift of money before setting out. He was inexpressibly hurt by the offer, and, at first, even doubted whether she could really love him. But, on second thoughts, he wrote to her, expressing his deep thanks, but, at the same time, the impossibility of his accepting such a gift from her. He succeeded in reaching his destination, though entirely destitute of means. After a long and hard struggle with the world, extending over many years, Fichte was at length earning money enough to enable him to marry. In one of his charming letters to his betrothed, he said, And so, dearest, I solemnly devote myself to thee, and thank thee that thou hast thought me not unworthy to be thy companion on the journey of life. There is no land of happiness here below, I know it now, but a land of toil, where every joy but strengthens us for greater labor. Hand in hand we shall traverse it, and encourage and strengthen each other, until our spirits, O oh, may be it together, shall rise to the eternal fountain of all peace. The married life of Fichte was very happy. His wife proved a true and high-minded helpmate. During the War of Liberation, she was assiduous in her attention to the wounded in the hospitals, where she caught a malignant fever, which nearly carried her off. Fichte himself caught the same disease and was for a time completely prostrated, but he lived for a few more years and died at the early age of fifty-two, consumed by his own fire. What a contrast does the courtship and married life of the blunt and practical William Cobbett present to the aesthetical and sentimental love of these highly refined Germans. Not less honest, not less true, but, as some would think, comparatively coarse and vulgar. When he first set eyes upon the girl that was afterwards to become his wife, she was only thirteen years old, and he was twenty-one, a sergeant-major in a foot regiment stationed at St. John's in New Brunswick. He was passing the door of her father's house one day in winter, and saw the girl out in the snow, scrubbing a washing-tub. He said at once to himself, "'That's the girl for me.' He made her acquaintance, and resolved that she should be his wife so soon as he could get discharged from the army. On the eve of the girl's return to Woolwich with her father, who was a sergeant-major in the artillery, Cobbett sent her a hundred and fifty guineas which he had saved, in order that she might be able to live without hard work until his return to England. The girl departed, taking with her the money, and five years later Cobbett obtained his discharge. On reaching London, he made haste to call upon the sergeant-major's daughter. I found, he says, my little girl a servant of all work, 
and hard work it was, at five pounds a year, in the house of a Captain Brissac. And, without hardly saying a word about the matter, she put into my hands the whole of my hundred and fifty guineas, unbroken. Admiration of her conduct was now added to the love of her person, and Cobbett shortly after married the girl, who proved an excellent wife. He was, indeed, never tired of speaking her praises, and it was his pride to attribute to her all the comfort and much of the success of his afterlife. Though Cobbett was regarded by many in his lifetime as a coarse, hard, practical man full of prejudices, there was yet a strong undercurrent of poetry in his nature, and, while he declaimed against sentiment, there were few men more thoroughly imbued with sentiment of the best kind. He had the tenderest regard for the character of woman. He respected her purity and her virtue, and in his advice to young men he has painted the true womanly woman, the helpful, cheerful, affectionate wife, with a vividness and brightness and at the same time a force of good sense that has never been surpassed by any English writer. Cobbett was anything but refined in the conventional sense of the word, but he was pure, temperate, self-denying, industrious, vigorous, and energetic, in an eminent degree. Many of his views were, no doubt, wrong, but they were his own, for he insisted on thinking for himself in everything. Though few men took a firmer grasp of the real than he did, perhaps still fewer were more swayed by the ideal. In word pictures of his own emotions he is unsurpassed. Indeed, Cobbett might also be regarded as one of the greatest prose poets of English real life. End of section 42